Good morning, brothers and sisters. Go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning, and let's open up together to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to continue in this great New Testament book together this morning. We're going to land around verse 18 in just a few minutes. We'll finish out chapter 12 this morning. If you need a Bible, there's a copy of God's Word in the seat pocket in front of you. I invite you to take that. That's our gift to you this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read through this, give you some big ideas, big truths this morning, shape our lives. But before I I jump in, I've got to kind of acknowledge maybe what's on a lot of our minds this morning is this week with, really with the whole world, our eyes have been on the nation of Israel. Uh, We and I and my family, maybe with you, with great horror and sadness, have watched the events that have transpired there. We grieve with the Jewish communities and the families and the great loss that's taken place there. And it's interesting that in God's providence, it just hit me this morning as we open up to the book of Hebrews, uh, we turn our attention to a letter inspired by God written to a particular Jewish community in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. So we're turning to a letter when we turn to Hebrews just to remind you that it was written for the, the Jewish people primarily. Great benefit for us as Gentiles, but primarily the book of Hebrews was written, and we say this over and over so you'll know the theme of Hebrews, was to hold out the absolute superiority of Jesus Christ in all things. From the beginning of end to the end of Hebrews is this, is this drumbeat, and the author is calling the Jewish people to turn from the old covenant that was merely a picture, merely promises of what was to come, and to run by faith to Jesus and Jesus alone. Now, by the time you get to Hebrews chapter 12, many in that community evidently have done that. Many in that community 2,000 years ago, they've placed their faith in Jesus. And now the author is changing his focus slightly. And his encouragement now is, run with endurance now this race of faith. You've come to Jesus in faith. Now the call is to run with endurance this race of faith that is set before you. That's really the theme all the way through chapter 12. And the author of Hebrews tries to give encouragement after encouragement to strengthen their hands and our hands as we're running this race of faith. Just to review, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That priestly language again of the finished work of Jesus. Our race of faith runs from the completed work of Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Everything necessary for us to know God, be right with God, fully accomplished in the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And now he says to those who have come in faith, run with endurance. He reminds us, and we looked at this last week. This is just review really quick. 
that this race of faith, this enduring faith depends on his power, not ours. Aren't you glad? He's the author. He's the perfecter. He's the finisher. This enduring faith of ours is not passive. We, we look to Jesus. We lay aside any sin that so easily clings to us. We lay aside anything that might cause us to trip up in this journey of faith. It's not passive. Enduring faith runs this race, this course that has been set before us. A runner doesn't choose his own course. We run the course set before us by our great king. We run it in faith. He reminds them last week, and as a reminder to us, enduring faith in Jesus will face hostility. This Jewish group here, written 2,000 years ago, is facing hostility. They're facing hostility from family and maybe friends who don't agree with their newfound faith in Jesus the Messiah, and it's costing them something. And then he reminds them last week, and we saw this great truth for us. That enduring faith will bring the loving, consistent, faithful discipline of our Heavenly Father. And we looked at that last week. God's discipline in our lives is not a hindrance to our journey of faith. It is an essential aspect of it. He says, endure hardship as discipline for what child is there who's not disciplined by their father? God is treating you as sons. So it gives them all that encouragement and all that strength to continue this race of faith. And then he has one more huge summary reality, if you will, at the end of this chapter to give those believers then and us now help in this race of faith before us. Verse 12, again, he's just calling them to this. He says, therefore, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. This language to those who are tempted to throw in the towel. They're tempted to, to lose heart. He says, endure well. Verse 13, make straight your paths for your feet. Walk in wisdom. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. And the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. One thing we're reminded of here that's very clear in these verses, this race of faith, this enduring faith, is never to be done in isolation. It's not an individual sport. It's a team sport. We call one another to endure well, and he shows us that here. He says, verse 15, let no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble. He said that no one who is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, don't let that just go unchecked in your community. And then he says, let no one be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. And you say, I don't know what's going on there. What's that all about? The story of Esau is this, that he surrendered the eternal for momentary gratification of a single meal. And he's just saying, look, as you run this race of faith, sometimes you lose in the moment to win long term. Do not sacrifice eternal benefits for the moment. Faith looks the long game. So all this encouragement that's there and all this calling to strengthen the hands and run well and endure well. And then we come to verse 18. And he's going to give you the basis again as almost after 12 chapters in the book of Hebrews, you come to 18 through the end of the chapter and it's almost a summary of everything we've read. 
He says, here's the foundation and the basis of your faith. And here's the summary and the foundation to run well and endure well. And I want to read 18, almost down through the end of the chapter. You can just kind of follow along. Why? Why run well? Why endure well? Why hold fast? This is verse 18. For, for you have not come to that which may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the, the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure when the order that was given, if a beast or an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Verse 21, indeed. So terrifying was the sight that Moses saw. He said, I tremble with fear. Now stop right there. We're going to talk about this in just a minute. What's the point of all this? This is Mount Sinai. The writer of Hebrews is going to give two graphic, emotionally charged images of the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. All that he just described here is the experience on Mount Sinai. He says, that's not what you've come to anymore. He goes on and he says, verse 22, and I'll just tell you, this is shouting ground for those who place faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. He says, you haven't come to Sinai. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God who is the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous now made perfect, <laughs> verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. How is that possible? The sprinkled blood of Christ that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. Jump on down, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Incredible passage of Scripture. So I'm going to give you one big truth, and we're going to try to pull through this, and then we're going to circle back to this at the end. But here, here's the big truth that he's pulling through is this, that faith in Jesus, genuine transforming faith will bring worship it will result in true genuine authentic visible vertical horizontal life of worship now he shows us that here in this passage he's going to show some incredible realities and truth of what it means to run to Christ in faith and then he's going to call us to this life of worship because our God is a consuming fire now Go back to verse 18 and let's try to walk through these images that he gives us here between Sinai and Zion. One of the challenges that you'll have to admit as we've been walking through Hebrews and we've been reading through Hebrews is when you 
read a lot of these passages, the author is assuming we have a real good knowledge of the Old Testament. As you read this, he's assuming when he, he describes this Mount Sinai that you're going, oh, well, yeah, sure, that's Mount Sinai. I know what that's all about. I've read it. I'm familiar with it. Maybe we are. Maybe we're not. So there's an assumption that's here. He's going to employ two powerful emotional images that if you're a Jew and you're reading this, you get these images. There's Sinai, terror, fear. Talk about that. There's Zion that biblically represents hope and a future and a king. And he holds these two things out to represent for these Jews to know the difference. You haven't run to Sinai anymore. You've run to Zion in faith. And I want you to know the differences. That's why he says this here. So Mount Sinai, verse 18 again. What does he mean by that? For you have not come to that which may be touched. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And remember, in the book of Exodus, Mount Sinai is that mountain that the Jews, when they come out of Egypt, they come out of bondage, that they run to, they come to out of Egypt. It is that mountain that Moses receives the law of God. It is that mountain, if you remember reading there, at 18 through 20, 22, something like that in the book of Exodus. It is this mountain where God manifests His presence to the nation of Israel as they've come out of Egyptian bondage has so much meaning to a Jew who looks back and they understand Sinai. Exodus 24, 17. I'll just read a couple verses from Exodus for us. Exodus 24, 17 says, picturing and describing Sinai, it says, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire or a consuming fire, which we'll come back to at the end of this chapter, on the top of the mountain in the sight of all the people. So you read that, okay. you got, you got to feel this here and this awe and this reverence that was Mount Sinai for the people of God. God manifested himself. God manifested himself in this incomparable glory and this holiness and this fear and this trembling and this awe and this reverence. So when a Jew thinks about that, they think about this awe of God and they think about him manifesting his presence there on Sinai. And you've got to understand this. Exodus 19 verse 12 says... And you, God speaking to Moses, you shall set limits for the people all around. Saying, take care not to go up into the mountain. Don't even get near the edge of it. For whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Stop right there. One of the things that's very important for us to understand when we see this image of Sinai is it is a picture of God in His holiness, in His perfect glory, in all of His perfections, watch, being unapproachable to sinful man. In other words, the picture of Sinai says, don't you come near that mountain. 
Don't you even touch that mountain. Because on that mountain is representing it. It's the very presence of God. Moses, Hebrews 12, 21. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, Moses said. Now, for us to understand the significance of what the writer of Hebrews is saying, let's summarize what Sinai is. It's the glory and the holiness of God on display. It is his holy law, his standard of perfection being delivered to mankind. And it represents man's absolute inability to pursue or approach God. Watch, left to ourselves. You can't go there. It is as if Sinai is saying, don't you think for one second that you can approach God in his holiness based on your own merit, based on your own goodness, based on your old law keeping. God to us apart from grace and apart from Christ, the picture is God is absolutely inapproachable. That's what Sinai is declaring. And for the Jew, that's the old covenant. The writer of Hebrews says that's the old covenant. In your law keeping, in your pictures, in all your rituals, in all that was there, none of that allows you to approach the very presence of God because it's pointing to something better. But he doesn't stop there. So with that background, he says, verse 18, for you have not come to that. To these Jews who have now placed faith in Jesus, their Messiah. Verse 22, he says, and this is just a glorious statement. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. You have come to that heavenly Jerusalem to innumerable angels. What did Zion mean in the mind of a Jew? How did they understand this passage? Well, Zion, that phrase is first used in your Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 5. It's synonymous with the city of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel 5, 7, it says, Nevertheless, David, King David, took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city of David, which later came to be known Jerusalem. It's synonymous geographically with the city, the city of Jerusalem. Zion represents for the Jews the city of hope and peace and a king who would rule well. Psalm 123, I'm sorry, Psalm 132 says this. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Jews understood from Zion, a king is going to reign. They understood it in the temporal sense to be King David. We understand that it's also representing a better David who would come later. Psalm 132 verse 13, for the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Representing again the better full presence of God. Zion also came to represent to the Jew not only the earthly city of David, but in messianic expectations the eternal city one day. There are messianic expectations in the idea of Zion that one day the better king is coming. And it's not just this earthly Zion. It is the heavenly city of Jerusalem. It is the new heaven and the new earth. Zion represented all that. 
Psalm 48, verse 2, beautiful in elevation is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. It's incredible language. Zion is the place where salvation is provided. Zion represents the place where God made the way by which sinful man could approach him. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 46, 13 says, I bring near, these may not be on the screen, you just write these down. Isaiah 46, 13. I bring near my righteousness, I will put my salvation in Zion. I will put my salvation in Zion. Romans 9.33, Paul, the apostle, takes this and clearly pulls it together for us and says this. As it is written, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He said, look, Zion is more than a place. Zion is a person. And it's your king. It's your savior. And Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Paul goes on, Romans eleven twenty eight. 28, he says, it is, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob or from Israel. So these are graphic images that you should feel as you read this. Sinai, holiness, separation from God, unapproachability, Zion, God's presence, God's sacrifice, God's king, God's savior in Zion is salvation. And to these believing Jews, the author of Hebrews is saying, run well the race of faith that is set before you because your faith is not rooted in Sinai. Your faith is rooted in Zion. There's a better savior. He's a better sacrifice. He's the better rest. He's the better high priest. He's the better all of these things that Hebrews has pictured and that this author brings it to this conclusion. He says, no, that is to whom you've come. You have come to Zion. And then what he does here in these next few verses is just incredible. I hope you've read through these. I hope you pray through these and meditate on these. What he does beginning in verse 22, he says, now I want you to know the benefits of Zion. He said there's these incredible benefits of running to Zion and some of these benefits are, are now. It's already in the not yet of our faith. He says some of these benefits are now. Some of these are yet future. But I want you to know what is yours in Zion. He says, verse 22, just look at these. I'll walk through these quickly. He says all these benefits are yours, verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. He says this God who at Sinai was unapproachable, now in Zion, full access, approachability to the living God. God is now approachable. He says the heavenly Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem, this hope, this fullness, this communion with God one day in completeness. Right now by faith we are citizens of a new Jerusalem. We have complete access to the living God. But one day the king will return in all of his glory and reign from that real place, Jerusalem. His kingdom will reign from the city of Jerusalem. And we will reign with him. He goes on, he says, to innumerable angels... In festal gatherings, you say, Pastor Mike, I have no idea what a festal gathering is. Here's the picture. He says, if you can just picture 
the reality of Zion that there are innumerable worshiping angels shining in all of their glory who exist for one thing, to declare the glory and the greatness of God. It is a scene of worship like you can't even imagine. Why? Because our God is worthy of that. He says, you've come to that. And one day, you're in that now by faith. One day, you'll know that by sight. And he goes on, verse 23, and he says, you've come. This is just a glorious statement. He says, you've come to the assembly or the gathering, or it could even be translated the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. What does that mean? The key word there is firstborn. You know, in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the firstborn. It refers to his status. It refers to he has the inheritance of all the earth. He has the supreme status of all the earth from which he will reign. What's this? The word firstborn here? It's plural. Meaning, it is the assembly of the, this is bad language, but the firstborns. Meaning, in Christ... He has shared his very status with you and his very inheritance with you. And we will reign with him. Glorious. And to God, the judge of all. God never ceases to be judge. But here, the God of who is the judge is now the judge has become our justifier. And we stand before this judge in Christ with no condemnation. Yes, he will make everything right. Yes, he will judge the wicked. But to those who are in Christ, no condemnation. That's Zion. He says, to the spirits of the righteous now made perfect, it's to all of those who by faith, one day it's a picture, we will be made complete. Christ who has begun his good work in us will finish it one day and there will be an assembly and a gathering before the throne of all of those who have been made like Christ in his glory and offering him the worship that he deserves. The good news of that is the struggle with sin and the battle you face every day and is conforming to the image of Christ. Listen, one day God will finish the work in you that he started. It's good news. Doesn't mean the struggle goes away now. We continue to pursue holiness, but one day we will be with the great assembly of those who have been made perfect. And then verse 24, how in the world is all of this possible? Verse 24 says, and you have come to Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood, this priestly language again of this better sacrifice of everything necessary being completed in Christ as our great high priest that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Sinai represents the fearful, terrifying reality of sinful man before holy God left to himself. But Zion and Jesus represents the grace of God given as he has entrusted to us a mediator. Jesus, who is the only mediator between God and man. He gives us a better covenant. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He says that's that's where you've come. That's the basis of your faith. Jesus, this mediator, 
all of these blessings. And to those Hebrews who are struggling with hostility. And to those Hebrews who are wrestling with sin out and sin within. And to those Hebrews who are trying to fight this good fight. And to some who are ready to throw in the towel. He says, run with endurance this race that is set before you. You've not come to Sinai. You have come to Zion, the city of the living God. And you have infinite benefits now, and you will have infinite benefits then by sight when Jesus returns and makes all things new. Run well the race of faith. Now the author of Hebrews is going to continue here, and he's going to wrap up this chapter. And then he, you, you can see his mind spinning a little bit. He, he comes to verse 25, and With all of this glory that he's shared about Zion and Sinai, he comes back in his mind. You can tell it goes to, he realizes, but wait a minute. Within that community of Jews, some have not yet come to faith. Many have. But some are still there and they're, maybe they've named the name or maybe they're wearing the t-shirt or they're wearing the cap, but... It's evident that they have never come to saving, transforming faith. They've never come to know this new covenant by faith in Jesus. There's no transformation for the inside out. And he makes one last appeal to them in verse 25. And he says this to those who have not yet crossed the line of faith. Verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, talking about Sinai, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. It is a serious, it is a stern, it is a loving call to those who have come so close but yet not turned in repentance, not turned in faith. They're continuing to trust their own efforts. And he says, see to it that now... Do not refuse this call of God to run to Him in faith and faith alone. As you read that this morning, maybe in your mind, there are names and their people and their friends and your circle of influence, even here, even in this community of faith, who you know they've come so close and they they wear the t-shirts and they name the names, but you know there's no transformation. They've never come to know Christ. They're still standing at Sinai, trusting in themselves. And for us, there's this longing for them to come to faith and come to Zion. I'm just going to share with you really quick, and, and, and we're about to wrap it up, but even as I read this this week, and all that is going through my mind, and watching the news, and all we're seeing in Israel, and all the, the grief and passion of that, this, this informed and helped shape my view a little bit, even this week, of what's going on in the nation of Israel. We watch with sorrow and grief and we pray as a church during this season and we must and we pray for the families that are devastated and we pray for those that are missing and we pray for the wise decision of leaders and we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And and I'll just tell you, even as a church, we're asking questions right now, how can we tangibly help in this season? The Apostle Paul would say in Romans 11, Romans 9, 10, and 11, listen, we've benefited so much from the Jewish people. How can we help them materially? He says that in that chapter, and we're asking that question. But let me say this. 
Ultimately, as you pray for the people of Israel and the Jewish people and you see the devastation there, I believe this verse would inform us to pray ultimately that those in the midst of this crisis who have not yet come to embrace Jesus as their Savior, God, use this war, use this pain, use this disaster, that they would not stand at Sinai. They would come to Zion, and they would come to know Jesus, their mediator, the apostle, the priest of their confession. They would run to Jesus. And pray that with passion. Pray that with zeal. Pray that with the author of Hebrews that says, do not refuse him who is speaking. So as you watch the news, yes, it, our hearts break. And at the same time, let's think from a gospel perspective. Lord, you use everything for your purpose. Use this for an ingathering of your chosen people that they would embrace their Savior, their Messiah, Jesus Christ. Pray that way. And the author of this letter concludes this great, great chapter. He concludes with that final warning. And then he comes back with one final encouragement for them to endure well. Verse 26, and we'll wrap it up with this. He says, at that time, looking back to Sinai, he said, his, God's voice, shook the earth. But now he has promised something yet to come. He says, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, something that's coming in the future. He says, at Sinai, he literally shook the earth, but a day is coming when he will shake not only the earth, but all of creation. Verse 27, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That's coming. That is all that has been made, all of creation, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, there's a lot there. Yet once more could be translated, yet again, once and for all. <laughs> there is a time coming when everything will be shaken, but that which is eternal and lasts forever will remain. And that is the kingdom of God. Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom. Zion, a kingdom synonymous because there's a king who will reign forever in all of his glory from Zion. And it is a kingdom that will not be shaken. He says what cannot be shaken is the heavenly kingdom and all those who are enrolled there by the blood of Christ. Endure well, follower of Jesus. Endure well those who are suffering. Know that your name is enrolled in a kingdom. No matter what happens on this earth, you're enrolled in a kingdom as citizens of a place under a king that can never be shaken. And he goes on and he says in response to that, verse 28... Here's your response, and I'm going to ask the team just to come on up and begin to play, and we're going to move into a time of response this morning as a church and move into our time of taking the Lord's Supper. But I want you to stay with me. I want you to read with me the end of verse 28 and verse 29. How do you respond to all this? He says, and thus, let us offer to God... In light of all that he's done, in light of all that he is, in light of all that he's given, and thus... We offer to God acceptable worship. What kind of worship? With reverence and awe. Why? Verse 29. Because our God is a consuming 
fire. It's a big truth. Genuine faith in Jesus. Genuine faith in Jesus. How do you know you're going to be part of that heavenly kingdom one day? What are the signs or the evidence of genuine faith? That you will be worshiping in that heavenly kingdom one day? That you worship today. The worship that we offer now, the writer of Hebrews seems to say, that's evidence that you have truly come to Zion and you've been truly transformed. You will worship that day one day, but you know you will because of the way you worship today. Not that you earn it, but it's a picture that Jesus has transformed your entire life. Big ideas. We'll close with these. We worship by faith through Jesus, our mediator of the new covenant. That's the only way that we worship, through Jesus, our mediator of this new covenant that has changed us from the inside out. We worship with gratitude. We worship in response to the grace of God. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We worship by offering our lives in service to God and others. Therefore, we offer to God acceptable worship. Worship is vertical. It's focused on who He is and all of His greatness. But genuine worship never stays vertical. It becomes horizontal in our service and love to one another. Talk more about that in chapter 13 next week. Finally, we worship with reverence. This attitude, never forgetting the glory and the greatness of who our God is. And we worship with awe. We never get over the glory and the beauty of our great King. He is a consuming fire, meaning He is worthy of our entire lives. We offer to Him, in response for who He is, everything. For our God is a consuming fire. Genuine faith in Jesus always demonstrates worship in our lives. you pray with me? Lord, thank you for this truth. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the glory of Zion. And thank you that you have delivered us from Sinai alone, where we stand naked of our own efforts and our own merits. But Lord, now we stand in our great mediator, King Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.